This episode is generously sponsored by PrepDish.com, a healthy meal planning service delivered to your inbox with love. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven talk radio that promotes happiness from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights trendsetters and change agents who offer sound emotional fitness tips for improving mental muscle tone and greater well-being. Guest experts include a diverse and proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who are devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology coach, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in the fields of sustainable happiness, mindfulness, and positive lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Welcome to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio, broadcasting consciously prepared brain food from the beaches of Malibu, California. Each week, we explore the very serious business of happiness, sustainable well-being, and human flourishing. We are not talking about that annoying yellow smiley face. No, no, no. We are talking about something much deeper and critical to the success of humanity. Authentic happiness is not selfish, egotistical, or narcissistic. In fact, it is essential in order for humankind to thrive. Sustainable happiness is important because it not only elevates our own well-being locally, but also contributes to collective global flourishing. The achievement of a happy life is not only positively good for us, it is constructively good for those around us. In short, happiness matters. Happiness comes from the heart, and this show is most definitely all about the heart. We're talking about when the mind controls us obsessively, compulsively, and repetitively. My guest today is Lily Bailey. She's the author of Because We Are Bad, OCD and a Girl Lost in Thought. Lily Bailey is a model and writer. She became a journalist in London in 2012, editing a news site and writing features and fashion articles for local publications, including the Richmond Magazine and the Kingston Magazine. As a child and teenager, Lily suffered from severe obsessive compulsive disorder, known as OCD. She kept her illness private until the widespread misunderstanding of the disorder spurred her to write her first book, Because We Are Bad, OCD, A Girl Lost in Thought. Lily lives in London with her dog, Rocky, but she's here with me today. Hi, Lily. Thanks for joining me on Harvesting Happiness. Hey. Hey, let's talk about what exactly is OCD. Many of us recognize it from things we've seen on TV and in the media, like obsessive hand washing, but talk about it a little bit more in depth. Okay. So the interesting thing about OCD is that to actually understand OCD, you really need to just look at the name of the disorder itself. So we have obsessive compulsive disorder. Having OCD means that you have obsessions, which are unwanted and intrusive thoughts, and compulsions, uh, which is the action that you take. It can be a physical or mental action in response to that obsession, and that it causes you significant distress. So when you think about OCD in that way, you realize that this is a disorder that can actually basically be about anything. There are people who have contamination OCD and have OCD that's related to symmetry and liking things to be neat and tidy. That's the OCD that gets heard about and spoken about the most. But actually, there are so many people who have OCD that is just not like that at all. Quite a common obsession is someone driving in their car and they have this obsession that maybe they've knocked over a child or a person, but they don't remember doing it. And then their compulsion is that they drive around the block to see actually if they have knocked anyone over and they continue to do this for hours. But but a lot of people have, have no idea that that's OCD at all, because we do talk about OCD in terms of, of being a vague perfectionist, which is actually not what OCD is at all. The whole thing about OCD is that uh, it, you know, it causes you distress. It's a, it's a disorder that's ranked um, in the top 10 most disabling illnesses of any kind by the World Health Organization. It's, it's not just about liking things just so. It's actually rooted deeply in obsessive compulsive thinking and behavior, and it can take over someone's life. Talk a little bit about how it feels to live in your body when you are having an episode. It's very difficult to be engaged with anything that's going on around you. I've described it as like listening to three radio stations at once. You you just have such a highly stressful narrative going on in your head. 
And I've had both physical and mental compulsions. I've felt compelled to check things when I was younger, to check under the bed that there are no monsters, which obviously lots of kids do. But I do this kind of all night to check that my sister wasn't going to die in her sleep. So just like repetitively checking that she's breathing, that her heart's still beating. And and as I got older, more mental compulsions, worrying I had done something bad and then sort of really carefully analyzing my actions. Did I do something bad? And it's like living in a total state of fear all the time. Things that to, uh, I, I, I never like to say normal people because I don't really think anyone is, but things that to someone without OCD are just, you know, everyday things can become like a total mission. And it's very stressful. You know, what you said about fear, is that where OCD lives is in this, this part of the brain that is constantly in the state of heightened awareness? So is it it's tying into um, fight or flight? Or where does it emanate from? Very much so. So, so uh, wh- wh- when, you, uh, when you have an obsession come in, basically, the, I'm not going to talk in terms of chemicals or, uh, or give you an in-depth discussion about the brain. I know a bit about it, but I don't consider myself an expert. But the kind of the, the, the simple explanation is that when you have an obsession, basically the, the level of anxiety in your brain just soars. And so everything is telling you that you need to do something that is going to diffuse this anxiety. And so basically, when, when people with OCD perform a compulsion, it's kind of a way of, of neutralizing that anxiety that has just seeped into, you know, everywhere. Of course, then people say, oh, well, if it calms you down, why don't, what's the problem, you know? But, but the problem is that the more you do compulsions, the more it feeds into that idea that the obsession is very important. It's quite like an addiction in that way. And I often say that it is when you do a compulsion, you do get that release. The fear goes away. And for a few seconds or maybe a few minutes, it, it can it can change from person to person from, you know, how per- that person's feeling. That fear does go away. And it's like, oh, oh, my God, this is amazing. You really get that hit. But the problem is, is that it doesn't last and it and it perpetuates the behavior. Amazing. I do see people in my practice that have OCD, but they have so many other things going on. Usually there's a addiction, depression, anxiety in the cases that I see. So to hear from you and learn that the sense of ritual provides the relief much in the same way the substance does is fantastic, really. It's very interesting. Yeah. And I mean, I have taken drugs, but I've, I've never had an issue with drugs. But I, I, I would say that I have had an issue with alcohol quite um, in, in quite a big way, actually, when I was younger. I, was, I very much used it to self-medicate. Uh, and the feeling I would get when I drank was quite similar to the feeling I would get when I did a compulsion, which is interesting to me. And, and, and I'm not just talking from my own experience here. Like I, there are so many people with OCD who do describe it like that. And it's, it's interesting what the brain will do, whether with a, you know, a physical substance or just with a kind of thing that we decide we're going to do in our head that, that will give us that hit and make us feel kind of good for a bit. So the ritual becomes part of the self-soothing, but then it, it perpetuates the cycle of the compulsion. Yeah, yeah very much it's, so. It's yeah. a loop. It's a, it's, OCD is one big loop. That's, it's often described like that. And in your book, Because We Are Bad, OCD and a Girl Lost in Thought, you tell the story of your journey. Talk a little bit more about it. About the book or about my journey? (laughs) About your journey, which is the book, right? Well, no, I I was wondering whether you wanted to talk about the process of writing it. Well, okay, so I was very secretive about my OCD and I, I didn't tell anyone. It was a really dirty little secret of mine. And when I started working as a journalist, I, I finally got to the point where I realized that actually when I do cover it up and don't tell anyone, often it creates this really bad situation where people think I'm okay, because that's the thing with OCD. A lot of the time it is quite easy to cover it up, particularly if your compulsions are mental. And then, you know, suddenly I just end up disappearing because I become really, really unwell with it. So I decided to be more open with my with people at work about my OCD. And I kind of said, listen, I've I've spent my whole life yeah, in this real real state of fear, constantly thinking that something bad is going to happen and that I have the ability to control it, that I have the ability to control whether I'm a bad person or whether bad things are going to happen around me and that it's my responsibility to do so. And it takes up hours of my day. So my colleagues were extremely supportive and this really encouraged me to to, to talk about it more because I had become so frustrated with the the way that OCD is is presented in popular culture and in the media as just, you know, 
being like, oh, I like things to sew. I'm so OCD about my pencil case. And and the reason that I was so frustrated by that was not, you know, because I don't have a sense of humor and because I can't take a joke, because actually I think being able to laugh at your whatever it is that you're going through that is so difficult can actually you know, provide a lot of relief and be a real light in dark times. But this kind of joking about OCD, it's not even really joking. It's just misrepresenting it because that's not what OCD is. And so when I was a teenager, because all I understood of OCD was that it liked, it was about liking things just being so. Um, when I was diagnosed with it, I said, oh, no, I don't. And I and, and I and I think I, if I'd had some idea of what it was that I was going through, I would have been inclined to seek help years before I did. And I lost a lot of my childhood and and teenage years to this thing. So anyway, I started writing more about it and was asked to write the book. And I thought, oh God, I don't want everyone to think I'm a nutter. But then equally, I just, I become so fed up with the way this disorder is so misunderstood. I couldn't agree more. And and something that you said about, well, it's in the title of the book, you know, because we are bad. So the idea is that we believe ourselves to be bad in some way, or we are fearful of badness happening. Yeah. So is there like a belief that in some way that you're not okay, that you're not worthy? Is it tie into the self-esteem loop for you or? Uh, very much so. I mean, that the title actually came from a line in the book. We weren't sure what to call it. And I, I had said that at one point, oh, because we are bad. And for me, that is, that has, my obsessions differ and they change and OCD is a shape-shifting condition, but they all seem to stem from this idea that I am bad and not worthy, and that I need to do something about it. Fascinating. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we'll carry on the conversation with Lily Bailey. We're talking about her new book, Because We Are Bad, OCD and a Girl Lost in Thought. To learn more, please connect with Lily at www.lilybailey.co.uk. On Twitter, she can be found at lilybaileyuk, and on Instagram, she's at lilybaileyuk. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. That is a promise. Hey, 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 before we head to the break, I want to talk to all the busy family cooks out there. You're going to want to listen to this. Prep Dish is a healthy meal planning service that will make your life a little easier, more organized, and joyful. Prep Dish stepped in to save the day in my house by increasing efficiency and decreasing stress. It helped assure that we're eating nutritious and delicious high-quality food. It's been bringing our family and friends together around the dinner table, creating a happier and healthier environment. Craft healthy and delicious gluten-free, dairy-free, and paleo meals right in your own kitchen with love. Each week, you'll get an email with a done-for-you grocery list and prep-ahead instructions for your weekly meals. You'll do your chopping and prepping ahead of time, leaving you more time to connect with family and friends. I'm a big fan of Prep Dish's yummy cumin seed crusted sea bass with mango salsa, forbidden rice and cucumber, and the almond butter brownies are yum. Prep Dish takes the guesswork out of the equation by doing the meal planning for you. And here's the best part. Founder Allison is offering listeners a free two-week trial to check it out. You can't beat that gift. Check out PrepDish.com slash happy for this amazing deal. Once again, that's PrepDish.com slash happy for your first two weeks free. That's a no-brainer. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. And that's a promise. We know that life can be tough and that happiness can and does live alongside adversity. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. We'll be right back after this quick break. Do you find yourself saying things like, I'll be happy when, or I'll be happy if? Does the finish line for happiness keep moving? Does the bar keep getting higher? What's getting in the way of your happiness right now? Too much going on? Working too much? Not working enough? Having too many responsibilities? Not having enough money, enough time, enough space? The list goes on and on. It becomes difficult to see all that we have if we focus on scarcity. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one. And sometimes we all need support. Are we happy yet? is not another self-help book. It's a guidebook for learning how to harvest happiness through self-mastery, which is the key ingredient into building resilience, hardiness, grit, and emotional stability. Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. 
day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life. And at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download and share this podcast. We're talking about something that is not spoken of often, and that is obsessive compulsive disorder. What is it? What happens to us when it rules our mind? My guest today is Lily Bailey. She's a model, a writer, and the author of Because We Are Bad, OCD and a Girl Lost in Thought. Lily, prior to the break, you were talking about revealing, you know, the big reveal that you had OCD to your coworkers, how they received the news. What happens when you out OCD? In your case, you start talking about it. You start allowing people to see really what's going on. Did you experience any diminishment in the symptoms or did things just carry on as normal? I think when you're able to tell people and you have and, and gain more of a support network because people are aware of it, that can be very therapeutic in itself. So I told a lot of my friends that that when I that when I have OCD and it's bad, I want to be by myself because, you know, any kind of social interaction can just totally set me off. And my friends sort of said, oh, well, should we go along with that? Or like, should we not? And I said, no, like these things, the compulsions are, are not to be respected. And and my friends then began to, you know, if I was just in my room, they'd be more inclined to sort of drag me out and say, hey, no, we're doing this thing. And that was great. And, and but then also, for instance, when I told people at work, so because of because of my obsessive thoughts, sometimes I, I do look really dazed or like I'm not really there and quite spacey. And, and people became a lot more understanding and accommodating about that, which was just really helpful in, in terms of not feeling like you're an alien. So it, it doesn't, I mean, talking about OCD is challenging because sometimes you do get these really supportive responses, but sometimes you don't. You know, you tell people you have OCD and often their response is, oh, I also have OCD, I'm so OCD myself, or oh, come and tidy my house, or, you know, something that actually <laughs> is, is very belittling. Uh, and 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 it doesn't it doesn't come from a bad place. It just comes from a place of ignorance. Um, but it, it can kind of make you feel like oh, it, you know, when you're feeling bad already because of obsessive compulsive disorder. So then hear that on top of it, it, it can be the opposite of therapeutic. I remember telling a friend at school when I just got diagnosed. And, you know, I really wanted to confide in her. And she said, oh, well, you've been so off at the moment. I was really worried it was something serious. And mm. um, I, I just that that can be really hard to hear. Because it is serious. Yeah, it, it is really serious. And another, a teacher of mine said to me, because I decided to tell a few teachers who were close to me, I was at boarding school, so it was kind of important that I had that sort of support network. And one of my teachers said to me, oh, well, I worked at a previous school and there was a girl who had obsessive compulsive disorder. And it was much worse than you. You know, she was, she she couldn't sit down on any chairs without newspaper. She had to wear gloves. You know, it was really severe. So so she got better. So, so you definitely can too, because, you know, yours is nowhere near as severe as hers. And, and that was also quite diminishing because it was just like, just because my obsessions and compulsions are mental doesn't make them any less severe. You know, at my worst, I was, I was spending 10 hours a day totally engrossed in this stuff. And the rest of the time it was, you know, very much in the back of my mind. The thing about OCD is that because it can be, it's not always invisible, but it can be. And when it is invisible, then it, it becomes very difficult for, for people to actually understand what it is that you're going through. The invisibility of it, I think, really is very challenging because, you know, it's like if, if you have uh, some outward uh, ailment or signs of distress, you, you, you understand what it is. And this is all going on within yourself, right? So you're not really expressing it to the outside world, but yet you, you say you have these um, obvious symptoms, like maybe your eyes may be glazed over, you might be appearing as though you're removed from being in your body, right? I don't know if that's an accurate de depiction oh, no, of it. That was fair enough to say. And I mean, it's interesting because I saw a brilliant psychiatrist um, as a teenager and she's, you know, there were times where I was kind of like thinking, do I, do I need to change this behavior? Like, cause it, cause it's, it's very tempting to just, to just want to go along with it because it feels easier. And she said to me like you, and, and I was also doubting that I actually did have OCD because it was so not like OCD that I'd heard of in the media or on TV and stuff. And she said to me, for someone your age, you have basically the worst OCD I've ever seen. And you like we need to we need to work this out kind of thing and it was interesting because at the same time as she was saying that you know my mom and dad were kind of thinking oh is it really that bad like because because it doesn't 
it doesn't it doesn't seem that bad and I think there were times where it would sort of seem like oh it's not that bad and then suddenly like particularly when I tried to 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 take my own life it would be like whoa because for everyone else it kind of seems so all or nothing because I wasn't outwardly displaying the kind of horror within if you know what I mean yeah wait did you say that you did try to take your own life I did yeah yes Uh, I was about 20 and I was away from home and things had gotten really really bad and that said when I say I say things have gotten really bad they had but it wasn't like one day I woke up and it was the worst day of my life therefore I decided I needed to end my life it was actually quite it seemed I'm not saying it it is but it seemed like a logical and rational decision because I just felt like listen I've thought about this and I, I don't seem to be compatible with normal human life my brain is fundamentally broken and it and it actually seemed like like a very like just a very kind of reasoned decision and and that's scary for me now when I look back and and think about it that I felt so kind of cold and clinical about the whole thing that was really how I was feeling at that point well first of all I'm so grateful that you didn't and because you're here to tell a story that is going to be helpful to many people but you said something in the first segment about your thoughts not to be respected and this this loop that you were in when you were at that state, believing that ending your life was the most rational um, next order of business, it illustrates this. I think you know, I'm this. It's so not just me who who does this. I think actually everyone does this to an extent, but there is a point at which it does become dysfunctional. We tend mm. to take our thoughts very seriously, and actually that can be problematic because sometimes our thoughts are just you know it's brain noise really. And and if you if you get to a point where you're totally ruled by that, you know, and you actually you know, you start to think, yes, I am my thoughts, you can end, you can get into a really bad situation. Yeah, indeed. What's the most useful help that you received in your recovery healing process? I think probably cognitive behavioral therapy with uh, my psychiatrist when I was a teenager, it, you know, it wasn't the perfect therapy in many ways. I had like difficulties in that I actually really kind of fell in love with my therapist and I, I didn't understand anything about romantic transference, which I now realize is, is quite common, which is where people do fall for their therapist. And I was so horrified by this that it kind of massively got in the way of my treatment. And I don't think that my therapist and I necessarily dealt with it as well as we could have done. So I'm not saying this was like the perfect therapy, but the, the fundamental elements of of the CBT I received were just so helpful and, and, and life-changing that kind of relearning how to, how to think and also the support from my family. Um, and I got a dog and I don't think you can underestimate the, uh, the healing power of, of a companionship animal, actually, you know, he gets me out of bed and that has been completely instrumental actually. What about healthy routine and ritual? In other words, uh, lifestyle management, making sure you get enough sleep, exercise, you know, that you're maintaining some rigors of a normal schedule. Is that something that you follow? Yeah, I try to, like, I try to get like the same amount of sleep and go to bed at similar times. And I, 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 I exercise, although I went through a period a few months ago of being super lazy and, and not exercising at all. And then a few weeks ago, I was like, I, I need to fix this. And I've just gotten back into my fitness plan again. I've just been for a run, actually. But sometimes you can lose sight of that routine and the good things it can do for you. Because if you do go through a period where you feel bad, then you don't want to get up in the morning, although you don't want to go for a run. Like those are the last things you want to do, even though they would actually probably be the most helpful things. Uh, so sometimes when I'm, when I am feeling a bit, mm, I have to kind of remind myself of, of how important that, that helpful and healthy routine can be. When we look at the title of your book, Because We Are Bad, OCD and a Girl Lost in Thought, was there a time or space in your memory that you can recall when the OCD set in or an awareness that this wasn't normal? And if so, was it tied to events that were going on in your life and the family? Well, I don't actually remember like not having not not having these thinking patterns. OCD commonly starts in in, in teenagers, um, but it does often. There are people like me who say, "Oh, I don't really remember not thinking like this." And again, people are not sure what causes OCD. Often, people have argued that it's genetic because you see a lot of it often in the same family, but they've never found, kind of found an OCD gene. And it may just be that it's a learned behavior, or that there is some genetic predisposition, or a bit of both. 
often OCD does seem to start when there is a kind of trauma or high level of stress. And as a child, my parents had a very bad relationship. And I recall when they were fighting, I was more likely to be doing my compulsions. So I'm sure that there is, you know, in terms of what experts say about OCD starting, the compulsion starting as a coping mechanism, I believe that 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 is all linked. Uh, And I do sometimes wonder if, if, if that hadn't happened, if I'd had a I don't think anyone has a perfect childhood. And, and in many ways, my childhood was great. But if, if I hadn't had that, would I still have this? And then sometimes I think you can go round and round in circles. And until we have more detailed research, we probably just won't really know. Well, I would argue that it's because of what we experience in our lives that we step into the places we're meant to be. And certainly sharing your story through your gifts of being a writer is the present or, you know, is the gift of your story. Something that was very difficult for you is going to in turn help and support a lot of others. The book we are talking about today is Because We Are Bad, OCD and a Girl Lost in Thought. My guest has been Lily Bailey. Thank you, Lily. I want to give your contact information one more time. To find Lily Bailey, you may do so at www.lilybailey.co.uk, on Twitter at lilybaileyuk, and on Instagram also at lilybaileyuk. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. And that is a promise. Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Unwrap your present by signing up for Happiness Headlines, our monthly e-zine at harvestinghappiness.com. Stay tuned for more after the break. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one, and sometimes we all need support. We all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstance. Sure, things will inevitably happen in our lives that are out of our control. There is only ever one thing that is totally within our control, ourselves. When we have command of ourselves, we are better prepared to handle life and bounce back more quickly when challenges arise. Whether you see the glass as half empty or half full, the glass has the capacity to hold more. You have the capacity to be happier. The tool to harvesting your happiness is within your grasp. Are we happy yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life, and at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, we're talking about excessively, compulsively, and repetitively living our lives when our mind is ruling us, when we are not ruling our mind. And my next guest is Dr. Elizabeth Mackingvale. She is an assistant professor in the Menninger Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Scientist at Baylor College of Medicine. Dr. Mackingvale's clinical interest is focuses on obsessive compulsive disorder, also known as OCD, anxiety disorders, mental health stigma, and access to mental health care. Elizabeth is also the founder of the Peace of Mind Foundation, a nonprofit dedicated to obsessive compulsive disorder. And Elizabeth is the first ever national spokesperson for the International Obsessive Compulsive Foundation, and she's a licensed therapist in Texas. And I am delighted to have her here today. We're talking about OCD. Elizabeth, thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. Oh, well, it it is a great pleasure. And what I love about what I get to do on the show is really shedding light, putting a Klieg light on mental health and help destigmatize something that affects each and every one of us. And if it doesn't affect us in our personal, in our person, it affects usually someone in our family. 100%. You know, mental illness affects on average every one in four people. And the reality is, is that, if, yeah, if it doesn't affect us, it affects someone we love. So there are no six degrees of separation. There's usually maybe one degree of separation when we're talking about mental illness and mental health. Talk a little bit about your personal story. Yeah, well, so I live with obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, at the age of 12, I grew up in Houston, Texas, and, you know, lived a pretty normal life. I was 
high functioning, did really well academically, socially, um, had a lot of friends and did well in sports and, you know, lived what you would kind of see or know as just kind of a normal high functioning life and lifestyle. Really no, no red flags, no clear indication for my parents early on that, you know, I might later on deal with a mental illness that we came to know as obsessive compulsive disorder. But that changed for me right around the age 12. So around 12 years old, I started kind of almost overnight having these unwanted intrusive thoughts, things like if you don't do this action, something bad will happen to someone you love or your family member will get in a car accident or you or someone you love won't go to heaven. And I started to have these these scary, horrible, fearful thoughts that then I was engaging in these compulsions or rituals, things like hand washing or excessive prayer or going back and checking things or calling my parents or my mom and asking for excessive reassurance. And that was my compulsion, which made me feel better, kind of got rid of this intrusive thought. And so around 12 years old is when I started to see symptoms and you know, pretty quickly things started to deteriorate. I wasn't getting appropriate help at the time. We didn't know what was going on. We didn't know what we were seeing or what to look for, certainly. And I just continued to get worse pretty quickly. My OCD by the time I was about 15 was extremely debilitating. Um, I was suicidal. I was hopeless. And every activity in my day was filled with an OCD thought or a behavior. So I would wake up in the morning and engage in rituals from the second I woke up, literally sitting up and down a certain number of times, getting off the bed, trying to get to my bathroom, turning my sink on and off, um, taking five to six hour showers, not being able to get to school on time and being completely homebound and debilitated by this illness, which we would pretty quickly learn was OCD. Wow, that is a, quite a story at a young age. And what do we know about the brain in OCD? You know, I want to say we know a lot. I wish I could tell you that, but we just don't. There's not been enough research and money. And so what we know is limited. But what we do know is that OCD is a neurobiological illness. So this is a brain disorder that you're born with. You didn't get OCD from watching someone else wash their hands or from your parent being mean to you or something happening. OCD is something you're born with. It's just kind of dependent of when it's going to be triggered. Now, some people are predisposed to OCD. We're going to have OCD regardless. The trigger isn't something we really need to worry about, but for different people, their illness is triggered at different points in their lives. For some people like myself, it's adolescence, puberty, um, often it's life changes, going off to college, getting married, going, losing a job, right? Anything that's what we find to be stressful and put, may put you in a vulnerable state. And then, of course, to high increased risk at postpartum. And, and you know, I'm wondering, as you're talking about these, the, the milestone of being 12 years old and when there's a hormonal shift in our bodies, and then you also mentioned postpartum. So mm-hmm. I'm wondering, is there any correlation or any research being done about the correlation of hormonal peaks and valleys and OCD? You know, I don't know that there's clear evidence yet on certain hormones being linked. And, you know, there's a lot of genetic studies. There's a lot of things going on so we can learn more and we can become as educated as we possibly can. But we know that OCD is exasperated when any life changes happen or vulnerabilities are increased. We, of course, see vulnerabilities in people being increased when there's hormonal changes, big life changes, things like that. And so that certainly doesn't cause the OCD. You're born with the illness. It just may cause it to onset or it may put you in a state where kind of not giving into the OCD or letting the thoughts just be thoughts isn't really possible anymore because you're already at an increased level of anxiety. So the stress plays a big role in the symptoms of it, but not necessarily triggering it. Exactly. So the stress could be a trigger in the sense that it could increase your symptoms, right? It causes you more distress, but stress alone is not the cause of OCD. It is, you're born with it. It's a, you know, we know there's a genetic component. Again, you're born with this disorder. There's nothing that someone did or that you did or didn't do appropriately or that you could have avoided to get to having OCD. So the, the, the course of treatment is, I would believe, has to be a very mindful one. Absolutely. You have to be very mindful. You have to be aware of what's going on and be as much, you know, really be as present as you can to be able to control and appropriately handle and, you know, your obsessions. And do the, uh, does the obsession become like an addiction? So you become addicted to the ritual 
and therefore it's hard to stop? You become addicted to the relief that the ritual prevents. You know, the, what I mean by that is that when you engage in a compulsion after an, an obsession, so you have this unwanted intrusive thought, it piques your anxiety, you feel extremely stressed, extremely vulnerable, you know, you don't feel good at all, your fear is at the forefront of your mind, and then you engage in this ritual or this compulsion. And when you engage in the compulsion, it's, it's quite mir- miraculous, actually, biologically, there is a distinct decrease in anxiety. And so automatically you feel better. You, you, that thought goes away, the fear goes away, the anxiety, the distress, everything when you do that compulsion. And so what happens is the behavior becomes a learned way to get rid of this distress. And so every time you engage in this compulsion, you feel better while the relief is only temporary and it, you know, doesn't last. And in the long run, doing these rituals makes the OCD worse and gives the intrusive thoughts more power in the short term it makes sense. It's, it's, it is addictive in the sense that when I do it, I feel better. If I don't do it, I don't feel good. So this is what I think I need to be doing to get relief. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing the cycle that, that you describe and we can see how it's also like security and safety based, right? Like that when, once you go through the ritual, you have some sense of satisfaction that, okay, everything is okay for at least right now. Exactly. So it truly, it, you know, I always give the example of you know, somebody who, if, you know, you're kind of searching for relief for an answer, it's kind of like if you're ever at the grocery store, if you have a kiddo or a niece or a nephew and you, you misplace your kid for a second, you know, you're on the cereal aisle and all of a sudden they're out of your eyesight and you start panicking, right? You feel completely anxious, panicked. You are, you're in a state that you don't ever want to be in again. And then you turn the corner and you see them kneeling down, playing with, you know, a toy that they found in the aisle. And how do you feel? automatically you feel completely relieved. It's kind of this like, Oh, moment, everything's off your shoulders. You might even hug them or say, why'd you walk away from me? But you don't feel anxious anymore because you got that immediate relief. And that's literally what a ritual feels like. You feel anxious, you feel scared, you're petrified. And when you engage in this ritual, it's this automatic relief. But in the long run, these rituals reinforce the the thoughts, and they reinforce that we need to do the behavior or the ritual to feel better, which it isn't truly, isn't accurate. So it creates a loop. We're going to need to take a break. And when we come back, I really want to c- carry on the conversation with this about this, this loop that we can get our minds into and how it can be broken, right? Because we also know that while the brain gets into its loop, it can also be rewired and rebooted. And what exactly, what, you know, what does it take? <laughs> exactly. Treatment's available and treatment works. And I want us to make sure people understand what that looks like and that there is hope and help for people living with OCD. I do, too. And there are more people out there that have this than I think society is aware of because they're like, you know, like they're 50 shades of gray. They're probably 500 shades of OCD. Uh, you know, it might be subtle for some people and then really obvious for others. hundred percent. You know, gonna, there is a total severity range, and then treatment can differ as well. To learn more about Dr. Elizabeth Mackenbell, please visit her website, www.peaceofmind.com. You can connect with her on Twitter at E-M-C-I-N-G-V-A-L-E. So that's E. Mackenbell. And on Facebook, the page is Peace of Mind Foundation. And she's also on Instagram at E. Mackenbell. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. And that is a promise. Who says money can't buy happiness? Check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life and other fun, fashionable, and inspiring items at shophappy at harvestinghappiness.com. We'll be right back after this quick break. Do you find yourself saying things like, I'll be happy when, or I'll be happy if? Does the finish line for happiness keep moving? Does the bar keep getting higher? What's getting in the way of your happiness right now? Too much going on? Working too much? Not working enough? Having too many responsibilities? Not having enough money, enough time, enough space? The list goes on and on. It becomes difficult to see all that we have if we focus on scarcity. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one. And sometimes we all need support. Are We Happy Yet? is not another self-help book. It's a guidebook for learning how to harvest happiness through self-mastery, which is the key ingredient into building resilience, hardiness, grit, and emotional stability. 
Are we happy yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life. And at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download and share this podcast. Why? Because sharing is caring. It's kind, free, legal, available 24-7. And we're talking about something very serious. We're talking about obsessive compulsive disorder, OCD, when the mind is controlling us, when it's ruling the roost and we no longer have dominion over what's going on upstairs. My guest today is Dr. Elizabeth Mackingbell. She is the founder of Peace of Mind Foundation. She is also an assistant professor in the Menninger Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Baylor College of Medicine. Elizabeth, you you told us about your your very compelling story from the age of 12 and living with OCD and some of the research and work that you're doing. Talk about the treatment. Before the break, you mentioned that there is successful treatment available. Absolutely. So a couple things. The first thing I want to share is that it's really important that we start with a proper diagnosis. You know, a lot of people, especially in today's society, label everything as OCD. Oh, I have a coworker. She's so OCD. Or this person keeps their desk organized. They're so OCD. That is not OCD, and OCD is not an adjective. OCD is a real diagnosable debilitating disorder. It's one of the top 10 reasons people file for disability in the United States. It costs the U.S. economy over $8 billion a year and is affects every facet of quality of life for individuals living with this disorder. We're talking about individuals who it's not about keeping your fridge perfectly organized or your closet organized. Those individuals often talk about the fact that, yes, while they may be type A or they may like things a certain way, that they actually get pleasure in the activity, that the activity of organizing or putting things in a certain direction or or lining up the labels or your closet and color-coded, that the end result makes them feel good. They, they enjoy the activity and they enjoy that kind of compulsion, if we're going to call it that. With OCD, it's totally different. It's an unwanted intrusive thought followed by a repetitive action, ritual, or compulsion, which does not bring the individual any joy or pleasure. So we don't like this compulsion. We don't like the excessive hand washing, the checking items, the reassurance seeking, the excessive prayers, whatever it may be. But we do it because we feel like if we don't, that feared consequence, that intrusive thought might come true. And so people get stuck in this pattern of obsession and compulsion, and it can take up their entire day. Of course, in life, of course, there's a range of severity. People can have mild, moderate, severe to extreme levels of OCD, and treatment can differ a little bit in the sense of the intensity. Treatment is pretty standard. So we have a wonderful, effective treatment for OCD. It's called exposure with response prevention treatment. It's a specific form of cognitive behavioral therapy called ERP, Exposure and Response Prevention Therapy. What it is is basically what it sounds like. We expose you slowly and systematically to your fears, and we prevent you from engaging in a response or a ritual. What's really important is that exposure therapy alone, although it works for things like PTSD and phobias, it doesn't work for OCD because somebody with OCD who's doing an exposure, if they touch a doorknob they're afraid to touch because they think they may get a bloodborne illness from it, that's an exposure. But if they go to the bathroom and wash their hands, now they've ritualized and that exposure isn't going to work to minimize their OCD. In fact, that exposure with a ritual now has reinforced the behavior and reinforced the OCD. What we have to help them engage in is exposures without rituals. So it's exposure with response prevention treatment. It's wonderfully effective. Often the gold standard of treatment is ERP with a combination of medication. But what we know is that if individuals are engaging in medication treatment, no matter what, they need to be doing ERP as well. It's, it's critical to success for OCD and to be able to learn how to manage your symptoms for your entire life. So with the exposure response prevention therapy, essentially you are placing people in their worst nightmare and then proving that they can be okay. 
Exactly. We're doing it in a slow, not so scary way. So, you know, we start at the bottom. We often, what we do is we build a hierarchy. We rank your exposures and your fears from lowest anxiety provoking to the most. And we start at the lowest level ones and we start slowly and systematically exposing you to the things you're afraid of or the things you've been avoiding for many years or a long time. And we prevent you from doing a ritual. And what happens is eventually you learn that you don't need to ritualize and you will habituate. Habituation is when we see your anxiety come down naturally without the need to engage in a ritual. For people without OCD, the example I love to give is if you've ever been in a smelly locker room, which most of us have been in. (laughs) When you walk in and it smells and automatically you think, oh, this is disgusting. If you turn around and walk out, automatically you feel better. But the reality is, is that the smell is still going to be there. Every time you go back in, you're going to smell it again and you run out and you feel better, but then you're having to re-expose yourself every time. But if you walk into that locker room and it smells disgusting, but you don't leave, what happens? The smell goes away, right? Yeah. You don't smell it after after a period of time. (laughs) And eventually what will happen is someone else will walk in and say, oh my gosh, it smells in here. And you're reminded that it even smelled. You don't even remember anymore because you habituate. It's the same thing with OCD treatment. If you don't engage in a ritual while it's going to take a little bit longer for you to feel better, right? Just like staying in that locker room. It will truly go away and it won't have the power. But if you run from it and every time you do a ritual, that thought will continue to be just as powerful every time it comes. I am fascinated by this and I can see from what you describe how it works. It's not comfortable or easy, but eventually the brain becomes rewired. Exactly. And we, we change your learned behaviors and we help you see that you don't have to engage in these behaviors to feel better. The reality is, is that everybody has intrusive thoughts and everybody has some rituals, but for people with OCD, they become debilitating and interfering with our ability to function normally. You know, a lot of people have a big meeting or they have a work appointment or they're going out of town. And so they, although they know they check their alarm, they check it one more time just to make sure they set their alarm, right? Or you're going out of town for the weekend and you double check your locks, you're going to be gone for a while. But often, you know, those are small behaviors that, that don't really interfere with your life with OCD. They interfere with our life. And so sometimes we have to engage in this therapy. That's hard. It's difficult. We're facing fears and doing things we certainly don't want to do, but it's more than worth it because you can get your life back. I get it. Talk about the duration of treatment, because I think it takes quite a bit of time for these new habits to form for the, for the wiring to stick, right? Absolutely. You know, treatment is very effective and it's pretty short term. So we can see incredible results in as little as 12 to 16 weeks. That's the average kind of treatment stay for OCD for ERP treatment. However, treatment is something we have to do for the rest of our life. You know, I had very severe OCD. I needed to go to residential care. I went to inpatient treatment for 90 days when I was 15. And then I relapsed again and went back when I was 17. And I still engage in therapy once a week, every, every week. And I will for the rest of my life because that is how I manage my illness. So for everyone, management is different. There's no cookie cutter, you know, way for us to say, here's what it is. And here's what it's going to look like for you. It's what works for you. But the reality above anything else is that it doesn't matter how wonderful your therapist and how great your rapport with your therapist is. You have to learn to become your own therapist. You are the only one that goes to bed with your thoughts and wakes up with your thoughts. And we have to teach you to be able to engage in your um, OCD treatment on your own because throughout your life, if you're triggered, if you're on vacation, if you're in public, we want you to be able to use the appropriate tools versus falling back to those maladaptive tools of ritualizing. And the relapse, I would think if it occurs, it's very easy to spiral backwards quite quickly. A hundred percent. You know, oftentimes if we start engaging in rituals and we have a trigger, that's something that seems very, very high level, something where we don't feel like we have the tools or the ability to fight on our own. It can be pretty quick that your OCD can come back into your life. However, it can also be really quick that we can redeploy that same treatment that you've used or that you've learned before right back into your life to control your illness. You know, I look at OCD a lot like diabetes. You know, people with diabetes have to learn to control their insulin. They have medication, they have help, but they also have to make life changes. And sometimes they might make some bad choices. They might eat inappropriately or they may be in the sun for too long and something might happen that can kind of throw things out of whack and spiral their illness. But 
they can get it back under control. OCD is the same way, right? We're going to have setbacks just like diet, exercise, lifestyle, all those things, but we can get right back on track because treatment is the same for no matter what type of OCD you're dealing with. What is so interesting about the treatment is it really is a lifestyle, adapting a lifestyle and a ritual of self-care that becomes the practice. And the more we practice, the easier it gets and the more we're able to move forward and be less likely to have a relapse. A hundred percent. You know, again, this comes back to that being mindful, you know, being mindful of your illness and your own symptoms to know, okay, wow, my OCD is creeping back in, or I'm engaging in rituals again, or excessive hand-washing that I don't want to be doing and being able to redeploy the tools that you know, and you have right away will make it where you don't go into a full-blown relapse. And so it's being mindful, being present and staying on top of your care. We're nearly out of time, and I want to just touch quickly upon the importance of support, the family, the family's role in helping the patient, uh, and then we'll just wrap, and I'm going to send everybody over to your website. Thank you. Well, you know, I hope that our website can be very informative. We have wonderful videos and content for everybody. And we try to reach everyone from professionals, family members, individuals with OCD to loved ones. The reality is, is that when somebody lives with a mental illness, the entire family and system lives with a mental illness. Mental illness doesn't affect just those of us dealing with it. It affects everybody. You know, it impacts the way you live your life. It impacts your ability to function. You have to rely on family members, friends, and often our parents, our siblings become our advocates and become our voice when we don't have one. And so it's so important as a family member that you understand what treatment looks like so that you can support your loved one in the treatment process for OCD or any mental health condition that they're dealing with, but also that you love them, that you support them, and that you become the voice for the voiceless when they don't have one. And the importance of talk, you know, the more we speak and the more we out the importance of mental health, the stigma can't live, you know, it can't live in the dark. To learn more about the work of Dr. Elizabeth Mackingbell, please visit her website, www.peaceofmind.com. On Twitter, she can be found at E. Mackingbell and on Facebook, Peace of Mind Foundation and Instagram, E. Mackingbell as well. Thank you, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for the work that you're doing and giving voice to this very important subject. Absolutely. Thank you for having me and shedding light on OCD. We have flown through another hour of purpose-driven media designed to inspire and delight you, our listeners, to create more joy in your lives and within your communities. Here are a few thoughts before we part. Happiness is not a destination. It cannot be bought, sold, or traded. Happiness will never invite you to the party. It simply comes down to a choice to show up each and every day in the world with passion, purpose, place, and meaning. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my amazing guests today, Lily Bailey and Dr. Elizabeth Mackingbale, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock Thanks today. for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio with Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Join us each and every Wednesday for a brand new episode of Consciously Curated Talk Radio from the Heart. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime from the comfort of wherever you are with hundreds of free downloadable podcasts from our libraries on Toginet, iTunes, and SoundCloud. In a complicated world seemingly driven by nonstop negative news, Lisa's mission is to celebrate the upside of life and seek the silver lining of our challenges by transforming them into uplifting growth opportunities for all. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio, KBUU, RadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.